welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Well, happy May. I can't believe it's May already. This year is flying by. At least it's warm. I was complaining not that long ago when it was freezing and now it's nice and warm and I'm enjoying it. Spring in D.C. is lovely. So taking advantage of the warmth and and uh, all the things that go on here, it's 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 a good time in, in this time of year in D.C. Uh, what else? Let's see. We got a royal baby now. We don't know the name yet, but I'm sure in a couple days we will. That's cool. Meghan Markle and Harry, Prince Harry, they're so cute. I know people wonder, like, what is the obsession? I don't know. It's just kind of cool. The the whole royal family thing. I don't know. I think it's neat and good for her. I'm biracial, so I watch the way they respond to Meghan Markle over there in England with interest, just as a as a biracial child, and how the the royal family is is dealing with that. You know, breaking of some traditions and things, um, kind of modernizing the 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 monarchy over there. It's interesting. I just think it's cool. So anyway, congratulations to them. Um I gotta I have to admit, I'm not a Game of Thrones fan. I know, I know, people think I'm crazy, but I've never watched half a minute of Game of Thrones. <laughs> so I'm completely lost when it comes to all the talk and everybody freaking out about Game of Thrones. I don't know shit about it. I watch billions on Showtime. Uh, my husband and I are into that. So Billions is going on at the same time. That's what I watch on Sundays and Veep, which is the best show. Hilarious. Um, so I kind of feel a little left out in the Game of Thrones thing. I, I don't know if I should watch it. I'm late to the game. I don't know. I don't have that kind of time. <laughs> I kind of feel like it's been seven seasons. If I haven't gotten into it by now, I'm kind of, I just need to just uh, you know, one day, maybe if I'm hospitalized for a couple days and I can binge watch it, I don't know, but that's what I did with uh, the wire. I was late to the wire, like years late to the wire. And then one year during the Christmas season, I had some time off and I was able to watch binge watch it cause they re-aired it on HBO. And I was just blown away at what an amazing show that was. I still think it's one of the greatest dramas ever. So I don't know, maybe I'll have a change of heart when it comes to Game of Thrones. I don't know. I'm just not into it, but uh, all you people out there, I I see all the tweets and so I I have no idea what you're you're talking about, (laughs) but we can talk Marvel. We can talk Avengers. The ban is lifted. Now we can finally talk about it, right? No spoilers anymore. People, I've been dying to want to talk about the Avengers, but I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it. But I'm not going to get into too many things other than to say that it was amazing. It was an emotional roller coaster. I choked up at least four times during the movie. There were grown men crying in the theater when I went to see it on opening. It was actually Thursday, the Thursday before opening night. I'd never experienced anything like that before in a theater with grown men crying. It was, it was unreal. My husband did not cry. No, but one of his colleagues did and admitted to it and we were busting shops about it, but I get it. It was emotional. So all you Marvel fans out there that have seen Endgame, you know, it was, I I thought it was really, really well done. I really enjoyed it. And, um, 
I, I just don't know. It's like, if you feel like a, like a huge thing has come to an end, like where do you go from here after this? But I think Marvel, the next phase is still going to be good, going to be good, even without the full Avengers part of it. Um, so anyway, so that's that. Um, Michael Cohen, the president's personal attorney, Mr. I will take a bullet for Donald Trump, ended up not taking a bullet. Instead, he's going to prison. And uh, he reports this week to the uh, club fed up there in Otisville, New York. And ironically, he's going to be in the same facility as Mike, the situation from Jersey Shore, who's there for tax evasion. And the guy, his name is escaping me now, that defra- uh, McFarland, the guy that defrauded all those people in the fire festival. Yeah, that guy. Uh, if you didn't see the Netflix um, documentary on that, it's nuts. It's nuts. I Wow. Anyway, so he's up there. So, um, I don't know, Michael Cohen, three years. Uh, he's gonna, I still think he has more to talk about. I still, he still seems like a woman scorned, you know? And, but to see it, what a turn of events, just that fast, just that fast. It was only a year ago that the FBI raided his apartment in his office and here he is going to prison. It's nuts. But Donald Trump is still very afraid, apparently, of what Robert Mueller has to say, even with the Mueller report being out. Because he's he's been tweeting like a crazy person, which is really not like any different, any more different than any other day. But he's been really, really tweeting crazy shit again about the Mueller report and 18 angry Democrats and Trump haters or whatever the hell nonsense he's been he's been tweeting. And I think that's because it's starting to, you know, people are not well, that's not really true. A lot, most of America has not read the Mueller report, unfortunately. So Trump has been putting out all this propaganda nonsense and this bullshit about what's in it and saying that he's exonerated and no collusion and that it's over with now. I mean, Bill Barr testified, the attorney general testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee and he made some comments that were contradictory to what Bob Mueller not only wrote in the report, but then we found out in this bombshell report last week that Mueller sent a letter, two letters actually, to Bill Barr after he put out that summary, complaining, basically saying, uh, this is a misrepresentation, it's a mischaracterization, it's causing public confusion, release at least the summaries, and there's no reason not to release the whole report actually in a timely fashion. And, and Bill Barr ignored that and still took almost three weeks before he released the redacted version of the Mueller report. So for Bob Mueller to come out and actually put pen to paper and send a letter to the attorney general expressing his concerns, that's a big deal. Big deal. Because usually at that level, they don't put it on paper. Because if you do, it memorializes it, right? It codifies the fact it's a written written record. It codifies the fact that the special counsel was unhappy. Um, and so that was extraordinary. And that story was released the night before Mueller, Mueller, I mean, Bill, 
Bill Barr was testifying. So that hearing last week was very interesting. And um, Senator Kamala Harris actually had some of the more damaging questions for Bill Barr. And she asked him if he, if the White House had ever suggested that he investigate a political opponent. And Bill Barr couldn't answer the question. Well, he could, but he refused. And he tried to act like, whoa, I don't understand what you mean. That's how he answered a lot of questions. He obfuscated through that entire hearing. He acted like he didn't know what was in the Mueller report. He acted like he didn't understand the meaning of certain questions. I mean, it was unbelievable. And, but Kamala Harris laid a couple gloves on him. And that was one of them when he was like, well, I don't know what you mean by suggest. She's like, infer. <laughs> you know, she, she, he knew. But the reason why he couldn't say with certainty that the White House had never pressured him into opening an investigation into, into a political opponents or into opening an investigation period, which the White House is not supposed to do. The DOJ is supposed to be ind- politically independent. It was because... Rudy Giuliani was trying to put out some kind of um, hit hit piece about Joe Biden and his son and you then the Ukraine and work they've done in Ukraine. And they and, and if you saw the tweets, they were trying to throw all the stuff out that oh the Mueller report, no collusion. It was really the Democrats. They are the ones they are the ones that were in, in bed with the Russians and everybody else. Come on. They're just trying to distract, just trying to distract and God knows what else, who else the White House is teeing up for investigation. That is so not okay. The idea of the president or the White House pressuring the Justice Department or the Attorney General to open up investigations into political opponents is not what we do in America. So this is a big deal. And the Democrats are very pissed off about it, and they should be. Republicans should be too, but all of a sudden, they're no longer the party of, uh, you know, the law and order party. Let that have been Clinton or, or Obama. Give me a break. And then the next day, Bill Barr was supposed to testify in front of the House Committee, Judiciary Committee, and he punked out because he didn't want to get questioned by staff attorneys on the committee. Um, I remember back in September when the Republicans brought in outside counsel to question Christine, uh, Christy Blasey Ford, remember during the Kavanaugh thing? So this happens. It's happened before. But Barr did not want to get into the weeds and being questioned by professional lawyers. Because remember, I mean, you know, members of Congress, some of them are lawyers, some of them are, you know, posturing politicians. But you get a methodical lawyer in there to ask questions and Barr's going to have a tougher time. And he knew it. So he said, oh, screw you, I'm not showing up. And then the Democrats, like Steve Cohen, they did this stunt where they had Kentucky Fried Chicken, like, oh, bars of chicken. Come on. I mean, I understand people try and have some levity here, but that was just stupid. Stupid stunts. This stuff is way too serious. We're on a collision course here between the separation of powers. We're on a collision course with Congress's oversight role versus the executive. This is not a joke. So... Democrats need to get their heads out of their asses and, and do what they're supposed to do in their oversight oversight capacity. And it looks like they're going to move to um, debate over contempt of Congress for Barr because he also, not only did he refuse to come before the House Judiciary Committee, 
he's refusing the subpoena for the full unredacted Mueller report. That deadline is passed. <clears throat> and this is a problem. Congress has subpoena power, but it doesn't mean anything if it's not enforceable. And this is going to be the question. How do they enforce it? Right? Eric Holder, who was who was Barack Obama's attorney general, he was held in contempt of Congress over the Fast and Furious gun running scandal because he refused to turn over documents. But here's the difference. Eric Holder then did agree that they would turn over the documents, but the Republicans decided to hold the contempt of Congress vote anyway. It was kind of a political stunt. Different than what's happening right now with Barr, who's refusing to testify, refusing to hand over subpoena documents. So he's not, he hasn't agreed at all. So he definitely is in contempt. So what are they going to do? I mean, the question is still out there. Democrats have been asked, are we going to send the sergeant of arms over to arrest the attorney general? I mean, you could technically. I don't think that's, ha- I don't think that's happened since the 1930s. That would be a bit dramatic. <laughs> but I don't know. How do, you, how do you enforce a subpoena? I mean, if you're ever going to do anything extraordinary, now is the time with these bastards over here in the Trump administration who just have a blatant disregard for the co-equal branches of government. This is not an imperial presidency, damn it. So I'm very curious to watch this. Same thing with Mnuchin, Secretary of Treasury. He's refusing to hand over Trump's tax returns. I mean, we're on a collision course here. This is all going to go through the courts. The New York Attorney General, they're looking they're looking to sue for Trump's tax returns, too, because remember, there's a whole nother um, state set of state cases looking into Trump and Trump's the inaugural committee and, and um, the, the Trump Foundation. Um, you know, has he evaded taxes in New York? I mean, there's it's not just federal. So we'll see. I don't know. It's crazy. And. You know, Trump uh, is afraid of of Mueller, obviously, because he he keeps saying now before he said, oh, I don't have a problem if Mueller testifies. Barr said the same thing. I don't have a problem if Mueller testifies. Then over the weekend, Trump sent out a bunch of tweets saying, no, no, no. What's the point now? We've already spent all this money. It's no collusion, no criminal conspiracy, no conspiracy, no obstruction. That's not true. Yes, it may technically not have been uh, a criminal conspiracy with Russia, but there was certainly collusion. And if you read volume one, and we're going to talk about that, because the guest on this week is Tom Nichols, who is a an expert in foreign policy, Russia policy. He speaks Russian. And he we're going to talk a whole lot about about his view on what's going on in this call with Russia and Putin and all that craziness with Donald Trump and that crap. Talking about he never brought up the the, the meddling the the uh, the election meddling with Putin. And what the fuck is Trump doing calling Putin in the damn first place? He's not our friend. He's our enemy. What is he doing? So that's who the guest is this week. I'm talking to Tom Nichols about that. Um, And he's hilarious. It's a great conversation. We talk also about Jeopardy. He's a a former Jeopardy champion. Anyway, but um, yeah, I mean, Trump doesn't, he doesn't want Mueller to testify now. Yeah, because there's been so much convoluted bullshit coming out of Trump's minions and Fox News and right wing media outlets about what was actually in the report, but 
Bill Barr is going out there just misrepresenting things. And that's a problem. And the only way to clear this shit up is for Mueller to testify. So we're waiting on that. Democrats have extended an invitation. They proposed a date of May 15th. It hasn't been accepted yet. It's still up in the air. Maybe by the end of this week, we'll have an answer. But Bob Mueller needs to, he needs to testify. There are so many things that need to be clarified. Um, It's been so frustrating, the no obstruction part, because he lays out a clear case for obstruction. But what people uh, who are Trump supporters keep leaving out is that Bob Mueller said that it didn't matter what the, what he found, he could not indict a sitting president according to the office of legal counsel policy that a president cannot be indicted while in office. So legal professionals have had enough. And this week, 370 and counting former federal prosecutors, legal experts, former Justice Department officials, they signed a letter that said that if Donald Trump were not president, he would be convicted, tried and convicted of obstruction of justice, that that the case was pretty clear. That's that's a lot. I don't think that's ever happened before. 370 former federal prosecutors and Justice Department officials. Wow. You know, obviously they know. So, you know, this this crap that Trump keeps trying to put out there, try to deflect, it's all a deflection. And he's counting on the fact that the 95% of the American people haven't read the Mueller report. And, you know, I, I implore people, even if you can't read the whole 448 pages, just read the summaries. It's all you need. The summaries, sum it up. Mueller summaries, not the bullshit that Barr put out there, which was just PR spin. It really is. And the amount of interference and what the Russians tried to do and did successfully should scare the shit out of every American. It should not be okay. So, and they're doing it again. They are going to do it again. Donald Trump has given no indication to Putin that there will be any consequences if they did this shit again. None. So if you're our enemy and you want to continue to sow discord, you saw how successful it was. You got this moron and helped get him elected. Why would they stop? They have no incentive to stop. So this is um, important for people to understand. You know, Trump is out here with retweeting conspiracy theorists, retweeting that bastard Jerry Falwell Jr., who tweeted a ridiculous tweet talking about the president should get reparations by way of adding two more years onto his term because of the Mueller investigation robbing him that stole two years of his presidency. These people are fucking insane. This is like... (laughs) I worry about a peaceful transition of power. I've said this before. And I bring this up in, uh, in, in my conversation with Tom Nichols coming up. And um, you can hear what his thoughts are on that. But what are we doing? Since when did this become acceptable talk? Could you imagine if Hillary Clinton or, or Barack Obama made comments about extending their term? What? Oh, God. I mean, I hate to keep repeating myself like a broken record about that. What if Hillary or Obama did it? But you have to mention it because it's so absurd the way these Republicans are behaving and the way these Trump people are just flouting the constitutional order. I can't. It's we, we can't normalize it. We just can't. 
We cannot. And no, Russia is not our friend. And um, it's a good time then now to bring in my guest for this week, Professor Tom Nichols, to talk about that. Why Russia is not our friend? What part of the Mueller report scared the shit out of him? What is What are the Republicans doing? Um, Tom is a, is a great resource on this. He's been on the show before, but I thought now was the time to bring him back, considering that Trump had this conversation with Vladimir Putin that he initiated, by the way, Trump did. And the fact that we still don't have a readout and there's such a lack of transparency when it comes to Trump and Russia, uh, it's it boggles the mind. So now's a good time to welcome Professor Tom Nichols. On this week's edition of Honestly Speaking, given everything that's been going on in foreign policy and the implications of the Mueller report, I just had to have my friend Tom Nichols back on the show. He's a friend of the program. I had him on a few months ago in the beginning to talk about his book, Death of Expertise, which he is the author of, and I suggest everyone read it. My mom is actually reading it right now because we talk about people all the time talking out their asses and they don't know anything about what they're talking about, arguing with experts. And I said, you got to read Tom Nichols' book. So he's the author of The Death of Expertise. That, that was going to be the subtitle. Stop talking out of your ass, but I couldn't, well, this I day couldn't and age, get that one to fly. In this day and age, you probably could. Maybe not when you published it, but maybe now. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you got to check out his book. He's also a national security expert. Uh, he's a Russian expert, which is another reason why I wanted to have him on this week. And he's a USA Today columnist. And he is a professor. And he's um, all things very smart about this stuff. So Tom, welcome back. Thanks, Tara. Good to be with you. Oh, my gosh. But I'm serious. My mom and I um, go rounds all the time on Facebook with people who we've known for many, many years that just all of a sudden have become political scientist experts. They're foreign policy experts. Mind you, they don't know their ass on their elbow about the difference between separation of powers. They don't know how a bill becomes law, but they're going to argue with people like us who know what's happening. And I, I tell my mom all the time. Um, oh, so I just gave her your book not a couple days ago. I said, Mom, you got to read this book. <laughs> it, it it is uh, it is amazing that we now, uh, especially since the Mueller report and all this other stuff, everybody's a they're all an expert on prosecutorial discretion right. and Russian countermeasures, right. and everybody knows everything. So right. it's been a it's been a grand old time with that problem. No kidding. Well, that gives us uh, those of us who do know what we're talking about an opportunity to set the record straight. And that's what we're going to do today about some things. Um, As you know, and I'm sure you've been following this with great interest, given your expertise in the area of all things Russia, the president of the United States apparently initiated a phone call with his other buddy, Vladimir Putin, to talk about, uh, I guess it was under the guise of Venezuela, but he brought up the Russian, quote, hoax. And there is no readout of this call. We don't know exactly what was said, only Trump's version. And he admitted that he didn't bring up anything about the Russian meddling, the Russian meddling stuff. When you saw this, what was your reaction? There are still little pieces of my head lying around from when it exploded. (laughs) Um, You know, the Trump administration um, 
I know that his fans love the idea that he kind of doesn't play by the rules and he's he walks the edge and he's really innovative. Um, the problem is this is why um, this is how he ends up with things blowing up in his face, literally blowing up in his face like mm. North Korea. You don't call the Russian president unless you have a really good reason to call. You have to have an agenda. You get briefed. You go into it knowing what you're doing. Putin's been president of this former KGB spy is a, you know, 18, almost 20 years of experience in national politics in Russia. Uh, you know, this is not somebody that you screw around with. If you're calling him, you call him and you have a reason. Now, I don't know why the president called him. Um, and I certainly cannot imagine why the president would raise the Mueller report. I, I can guess that, um, as I wrote last summer, I have thought for a long time that the Russians know a lot of ugly stuff about the president and his business dealings because he's been uh, moving money and property around uh, with the Russians for 30 years. And he may just have been calling in to say, you know, the Mueller report is over. Are we still good? Uh, you know, are we OK? Uh, because I think Putin provokes a lot of anxiety in him. It's very clear when you see them together that. You know, Putin is pretty much in charge. Um, I, I, I'll say for the, you know, just to be clear here, I don't think Trump's a Russian agent or a Manchurian candidate. I think he's just scared of Putin because I think he's, you know, this is the problem of when you know somebody knows you've done bad things, you're worried about what they have. Well, that would um, that would be consistent with why the president's scared of Mueller testifying. But we're going to get well, to that in a, in a minute. Exactly. Yeah. It's but, a, but I. I I mean, I read the Russian readout of the report just as as the president was, you know, sitting there saying, well, we talked about the nuclear, um, you know, whatever that means. The <laughs> Russians actually put out their own readout of it. Um, you know, this is where it's handy to be able to read Russian. And it, it really came across as a, uh, you know, brushback pitch, um, you know, the the the. the the Russian readout uh, said Putin emphasized, and they used words like, you know, emphasized, underlined, you know, that um, stay out of Venezuela, tell the Ukrainians to get on the stick and start implementing the Minsk Accord. Um, you know, we I talked to Kim, Il, uh, Kim Jong-un, and he understands, you know, but we all agree denuclearization should go apace. I mean, it was Putin basically saying, look, I, I, I'm large and in charge here, and here's some things that I want you to understand that you're not not going to do. And I don't understand why we initiated that call to basically get that rap on the knuckles from the Russians. I mean, I, I guess I'm still old enough to remember when we were a superpower right. and, and the dominant power leading the most successful and powerful alliance in human history. Instead, the president calls up, brings up what is really an internal matter of the United States and insofar as it affects the Russians, is and should be highly classified. Um, and then the rest of the phone call is the Russian president, you know, patiently explaining to the American president all the things he's not going to do and all the things the Kremlin would would like us to get on the stick about. You know, that's pretty remarkable um, considering a couple things. One, it used to be a big deal when these phone calls happened and you would have experts in the room. You'd have your national security team. Um, like you said, the president would be fully briefed the, the outline of what was 
to be discussed is usually pretty controlled. And you would have what's called a readout. A lot of the American people don't understand the significance of us not having these readouts. It's similar to us not having the White House press briefings anymore. It's all in the spirit of transparency so that the American people can see what's going on, how our president is handling these foreign leaders. And they're really in the past, there's been no reason short of maybe, you know, talking about classified operations or something we're doing with allies. But Russia is not an ally. They are not our friend. So the idea that the president of the United States continues to have these, I don't want to say secret, but unmonitored or recorded conversations with the Russian president is very alarming to me. And and I can you explain how abnormal this is? Why the American people should be upset about it? Because Trump people say, well, what's wrong? Why can't we be friends with Russia? Why not? It's a good idea. Why is this a bad idea? Well, this is how abnormal it is. When President Obama called Putin to try to warn him off about menacing Ukraine, I was one of the people that crawled up Obama's leg and and um, gave him a ration of crap on uh, well on my then blog and on Twitter and others because he had a picture of himself in his jeans alone in the Oval Office talking to Putin. I said this is a bad. Optic. And by the way, I stand by that. I mean, people now have said, isn't everything Obama did great compared to Trump? Yes, but only compared to Trump. Right. Um, (laughs) Right. And so I said, look, this is a really bad optic. This comes across as unserious. The right picture that you take, if you're calling up the president of Russia to talk about something that involves, particularly if it involves a potential military conflict, you want to be sitting at the Resolute desk, you know, in a jacket and a tie, looking serious with the secretary of state, the secretary of defense, the director of the National Security Council, you want everybody standing there to send that visual mm-hmm. to Moscow that says, this, we are serious people, don't screw with us. That's right. So now we have this thing where, you know, the president, President Trump, picks up the phone and apparently blathers into the phone for 90 minutes because, of course, everybody who's briefed him, having met people who have briefed him, they all say the same thing. He doesn't listen. He just talks, um, which is always a dangerous thing to do around a professional intelligence Mm -hmm. uh, officer, by the way. Um, I wanted us to have a better relationship with Russia, and I wrote many things to that effect over the past 25 years. As I always say, the person who talked me out of a better relationship with Russia is Vladimir Putin. This guy is not only not our friend, this is an enemy regime. I I feel very warmly toward Russia and the Russian people. I hope for a better relationship one day. But this regime in the Kremlin is not just not a friend. They are distinctly an enemy of the United States and NATO and describe themselves in those terms. So when the president gets on the phone and just, you know, starts talking, uh, Yeah, there should be people there advising him. And the other thing that's completely abnormal, and this is where I'm really appalled at, at, particularly at the Republicans. And by the way, this is a Republican president. This is the party that once claimed it was, you know, the party of national security holding the line against the Russians. This is the party of Ronald Reagan tear down this wall. Not anymore. Not anymore. It was that party. That's right. You left the party. I'm still grappling with it, but I and I I get it. It's it's things like this when I I'll just whisper in your ear and say. 
say it's time to go. <laughs> I know. Well, um, look, in the state of Virginia, you don't have to register by party in order to vote in the primaries. And I can guarantee you, I will not be voting Republican in 2000 in, in the next election in 2020. But go ahead. Uh, but but the other thing that's completely abnormal about it are the people who, defending the president who I think have really adopted a totalitarian mindset or not. I shouldn't say that an authoritarian mindset. Hey, the leader's in charge and he's talking to people and we little people don't need to know that. We don't need to know about it. He's got this. These are the same people that were chanting lock her up and drain the swamp and no more secret elite deals and all of that crap. And yet when the when this president does it, they say, hey, we don't question the boss. Right. You know, we don't we don't ask those questions. If you want to talk to the Russian leader, that's really none of our business. Well, it damn well is your business. This is a republic. He works for you. Congress is the oversight authority. These are the elected officials in the United States. If the president is talking to an enemy leader and not telling you what he's talking about, you know, the right answer to that is not to just sit back and say, well, you know, he's the boss. That's that's how you end up with an, an authoritarian government uh, down the line, because because the culture mutates into a leader culture. And, and that's just, I, personally, as an American, when my fellow citizens do that, I find it disgusting. Well, I, that's a great point that you raise, because we've seen um, this changing of the culture and what's been acceptable coming from our elected leaders and what compared to what has not been acceptable in the past. And that change, particularly from Republicans, you know, I've been involved in Republican politics for over 20 years, 25 years now, geez. And I am just, every, every time an incident like this happens, especially on foreign policy, I'm just blown away at the level it's of- It's vertigo. And it, it is. It's vertigo inducing. It really is. It is and because it, I'm going, wait, who are these people? You know, right. Lindsey Graham and others who've been around long enough to know better and who have had complete 180 degree changes in their foreign policy views- when it comes to this president is it, 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 the foreign policy part of this. And I try to explain to people is really where the president can inflict the most damage because it's more unilateral than domestic policy. Theoretically, and you never, have to have Congress to balance you out, but we can't stop. Congress can't stop him from calling up Putin or King Kim Jong-un and doing, you know, nope. saying crazy stuff. Nope. Then, and do? that's why I think the never Trump Republicans were drawn heavily out of the national security Republicans. Right. And the first rebellion against Trump, even as a candidate, came from the National Security Republicans. That's correct. And, and for exactly this very reason. And, and let me just point something out to people who may be listening and, and who feel the need to defend the president on this. Uh, uh, I'm going to drop a mild swear because we're on a podcast and I can. You can say these whatever are, you want. I curse all the time. <laughs> these are the same people who, when Barack Obama murmurs, I'll have more flexibility after the election, mm -hmm. which is a... Re not, I mean, it was just bad diplomacy. It was a clumsy thing to say, but it is the kind of thing presidents say when they're, you know, trying to work their way through a, a negotiation. Republicans lost their shit. I remember. I was they one of them. went berserk. And mm -hmm. I, I, I said, this is, uh, I, I didn't, I mean, I, I was critical of it, but I wasn't, I didn't go ape. 
because, you know, I've read endless volumes. I mean, I reviewed the entire volume of Kissinger's discussions with um, the Brezhnev regime. I mean, I did the whole State Department documentary thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes that's how they talk. They say, now, remember, you know, we're a democracy. We have our limits after the election. Um, Okay, bad diplomacy, a clumsy thing to say, an embarrassing hot mic moment. Republicans were ready to impeach. They lost their minds. Now the president says, hey, uh, I went to Helsinki, and I believe Vladimir Putin over our own intelligence agencies, (laughs) and I'm not going to tell you about the rest of what I said. And Republicans say, well, you know, he's the boss. Uh, how How can we even question the man? He's in charge. Since when did we become, you know, well, I can, I guess I'd say since 2016, but we, we really, at least among the Republicans, they've become this kind of Mickey Mouse mafia family uh, <laughs> where, you know, if, if Tony, if uh, Big Tony says, well, you know, that case closed and everybody says, well, you know, the boss said it's case closed and you're seeing it now. I know we're going to talk about this in a bit, but we're seeing it now with the Republicans that are all getting on board with not wanting to hear from Robert Mueller. You know, the president said, well, it's done. And they're saying, well, OK, then it's done. Yeah. Uh, yeah um, yes. That's not how we that's not that's not how a democracy works. It, it's not. And um, that's actually a good uh, a good segue. Um, I was going to ask you. Well, let me just ask you one more thing to button up the, the Russia not being our friend part of this. Um, the conversation, I thought, was also very strange. The timing after Putin just had meetings with Kim Jong Un in North Korea, uh, not in North Korea, but, um, you know, he ta- they were chatting. And right. and then North Korea launches a couple of, of rockets. They do some missile tests, and now the you, you know U.S. government was seemed to be okay with that. And they're not they're not missiles, they're not rockets, they're projectiles now. Um, what is the why should we be or or I should say explain why we should be weary of the fact that that Putin and Kim Jong Un are forming an alliance? What's in it for Russia? Well, Russia, um, let's not overstate the the love between Russia, China, and Kim Jong-un and, and North Korea. Um, basically, those are three actors that have different interests, but they have one common interest, which is limiting American power. And so – uh, the Chinese, I, I think, for example, the Chinese have just about had it with that little weirdo uh, on the Korean Peninsula, but they're never going to throw them off the bus because what they don't want a united capitalist South Korea full of, uh, you know, uh, American troops and money on their border. So they say, well, you know, he's he's a pain in the ass, but he's our pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. And what they what they want is a kind of uneasy status quo. I mean, China rapidly is becoming in some ways. Um, very invested in the um, um, China has become very invested in the status quo because they're getting rich. You know, they don't they don't want Shanghai to suddenly go broke. The Russians really don't have an interest in the status quo. They're trying to upend it, rewrite borders by force. And Putin really is a kind of throwback to, you know, homo sovieticus, the Soviet man. He has said, he told the the secretary general of NATO, my goal is to end your organization. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Kim Jong-un is trying to develop a nuclear capacity so that his family continues to rule the peninsula like a dynasty and a prison camp forever. So those three actors, what's the one thing that is the sticking point in all of their ambitions? The United States of America. So they may not like each other. They may annoy each other. In the case of the Chinese and the Koreans, the Koreans are probably pissing them off in Beijing. The Russians have never liked the Chinese because they're there's a pretty strong bad history there and a pretty yes. strong racist. Yes. There's a pretty strong racist streak in Russia. Um, I'll just tell a quick story. I know I'm rambling, but I, oh, I, I just okay. want to point this out. Um, years ago, I was watching joint Russian, um, a joint Russian-Chinese exercise being reported on Russian television. <laughs> oh, that and sounds exciting and exciting. I was, well, you know, I, was in, I was in Moscow, and it was really kind of hilarious because the Russian general, it shows you, you know, kind of imagine an American general doing this. He, um, he was trying to compliment the Chinese, and he just didn't know how to do it. And he said, you know, our Chinese colleagues, they're very good. They're very good at these exercises. They're very organized, you know, like ants. <laughs> and, um, you know, I took like, turned to my buddy. I'm like, did I, did I hear that right? And he's like, yeah, you know, it's so, you know, the, I, I think that the Russia, China, Korea axis thing has always been overblown, but none of these people wish us well. And the president keeps walking into a a bear trap with every single one of them. He has stepped on every rake that they could possibly put out there because he doesn't know what he's doing and he doesn't listen to anybody around him. It's uh, it's remarkable to, to watch this unfold and to watch our status in the world diminish so quickly. Those of us who thought that that was happening under Obama, well, um, <laughs> you know, I, I look at this I and mean, I go, uh, the good was, old days. Right. I never thought I would say that, but you know, this is something uh, unlike we've we've ever seen and um it, it just continues to get to get worse um which leads me to what russia and and the the Mueller report have you know the, the significance of that i had asha rangapa on um a couple episodes ago and i asked her were you of a team volume one or team volume two <laughs> concerning the the russia report and her of course being uh, a lawyer and um you know she in, in national security the counterintelligence part of this it was interesting but she was more team uh, volume two i would assume that for you your team volume one given the way the Mueller report laid out what the Russians actually did and how receptive the Trump campaign seemed to be of uh, Russia's overtures. Um, Am I correct to assume you're more team volume one? Right. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, just, you know, this is where I have to uh, um, observe my own lines of expertise. I'm not a lawyer. A lot of volume two is just over my head. Right. Uh, You know, I'm just an unfrozen caveman professor. That sure (laughs) looks like obstruction of justice to me. Right. Right. You know, when, when the guy calls up his lawyer, and he says, uh, listen, if the feds ask you anything, lie. Right. Uh, you know, or let's I mean, get I rid almost, of the guy investigating this. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I can almost hear it in like, you know, Stephen, Stephen Van Zant's voice. Yes. You know, as Silvio Dante. Right. Hey, oh, you know, if they ask you, you're not home. You, you, you had to go to Venezuela for a month, you know. Right. Right. But um, <laughs> uh, on volume one, I mean, volume one is the gift that keeps giving because I keep trying to make my way through it. And I kind of keep it. I open it up and I just get lost in the footnotes. Volume one tells a very clear story. The Russians attacked our country. The Trump team all the way up to the president thought that was awesome. (laughs) 
Yeah. Now, the, here's the thing, you know, that that the rush that the people out there, you know, some of my former colleagues at some other journals and some of the con- some of our former conservative brethren, they're like all about this just proves there was no collusion. No, it proves there was an immense amount of desired collusion. And in some cases, it proves that there was collusion, but not a conspiracy that Mueller could actually charge as a crime. You know, when Constine, when when um, Manafort is sharing polling data with mm-hmm. Kalimnik, you know, Barr, that was an interesting moment in the hearing when William Barr said, what, what, what did he share? I don't believe for one minute that Barr didn't know uh, yeah, about so, that question. So just to put, just to clarify for people who don't know what we're yes, talking sorry, about. Sorry. Right. No, no, for people that's that okay. haven't been read in. Right. Right. To the... <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, in, in the Mueller report in volume one that focuses on the Russian collusion part of this. And then volume two was the obstruction part to make it simple. And last week when the attorney general was testifying uh, at the Senate judiciary committee hearing, he was asked about the, about Paul Manafort, who was Donald Trump's ca- uh, campaign chairman for a few months there. Um, and Paul Manafort is in prison. And part of why he's in prison is for all kinds of illicit shit that he did. And a lot of it had to do with Russians and the Ukraine and money. And he had a lot of Manafort's in prison because karma exists. Yeah, right. Exactly. Because he's been a bad actor for decades in Washington and it finally caught up to him. The worst thing he ever did was take the job as campaign like chairman everybody, for Trump. Like, like yeah, everybody, right. he could have been a millionaire for the rest of his life yeah. if he had just stayed away from Donald Trump, well, but he just couldn't help himself. He couldn't help himself because what part of the, what, what we believe motivated him was the fact that he ha- owed a debt to some of these Russian oligarchs that he'd worked for and having access to Donald Trump was something he thought could be beneficial, mutually beneficial between right. him and the Russians. And one of the things that he did was that he took polling data and campaign strategy and shared it with this guy named Konstantin Kalimnik, who has been identified by our intelligence community as a potential Russian intelligence asset. And and even more than that, and that was your your summary was perfect. Um, even more than that, Kalimnik is has is suspected of contacts not with the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, but with the GRU, which is military right. intelligence, which, you know, in the world of Russian intelligence, these are the guys who scare the other guys in the in, in Russian intelligence. I mean, these are seriously badass guys. And they're ta- and they're through and, and Mueller talks about them and their role in the election right. interference is pretty significant. He, he indicted a bunch. Yes, of them. that's right. That's right. Uh, when you hear about the IRA, the Internet Research Agency and the GRU, um, these are really, really bad actors that are financed and sanctioned by the Russian government to disrupt and sow discord in our democracy. And that's what they did. And the and the and the Trump campaign was like you said, they were all they, about it. Good. We don't they care. Thought it, they on. thought it was awesome. I mean, one yeah. of the funniest parts of volume one is Mueller deciding that he can't really go after Donald Trump Jr. because he he basically has to reach a conclusion that Jr. was too stupid to understand that what he was doing was incredibly illegal. <laughs> which is, um, I mean, which is, is un- you know, unbelievable. It, it's the gang that couldn't shoot straight. I know. But 
but in but the meantime, in the meantime, though, so when you when Trump says no collusion, no collusion, and he's constantly saying collusion, which again is not a legal term found in right. the federal code. Um, there was a lot of colludy shit going on, and yeah. so people should that people should not be okay with. What jumped out to you when you were reading the the, the Mueller report? What jumped out to you? What were your holy shit moments when you were reading well, Volume One? I guess having spent um, you know so much time. I mean, the first time I was ever granted a security clearance was you know thirty. Oh man, now I feel old. Um, you know, during the Reagan days, back back, back during the Hoover administration, <laughs> we were we were dealing with the Nazis, um, and it was inscribed on an onion. You know, um, but uh, the you know that anybody who's ever dealt with classified material and has had all the briefings about what to watch out for, I mean, the alarm bells are just going off, and you read this, and and the holy shit moments are like. When you when you get like to the Trump Tower meeting or the mm-hmm. phone call about this or Kalinda, you say, okay, now you're going to pick up the phone and call the FBI, right? Okay, now you'll pick up the <laughs> and instead it's like uh, to steal a line from a great song by Talking Heads. Everything boils down to how do I work this? Yes. You know how do I work this? How do I make this thing go? And and I think one of the things that William Barr did, and and one of the reasons that Mueller has to testify, is that he defined down all of the crimes to very discreet words. Like so, well, nobody associated with the Trump campaign talked to anybody in the Russian government. Right. Well, he was okay. Very particular about his language. If Kalimnik, I mean, you know, this is one of those things where. Kalimnik is not technically a member of the Russian government, but this is one of those moments where what counterintelligence agents would know, counterintelligence analysts would know, is incredibly dangerous and and obviously is what it is of, you know, person who's connected to Russian intelligence. The bar the bar and Trump administration folks are saying, well, not technically Russian government. And Mueller is mousetrapped by that saying, well, I can't really charge a crime of conspiracy because I don't have a handshake from the bad guys and our guys to say, if you do this, we'll do that. But clearly, and again, let's go back to our, you know, my former and your current compatriots in the Republican Party. If anyone else had done this, if there was even a tenth of this between you know Hillary Clinton and the Chinese or Barack Obama and the Iranians, the Republicans would have burned Washington to the ground by now. Yes. They would have without question. Impeach, without, the impeachment hearings would be over already. And they would be uh, warranted. And, and, it, and they is, would they, be right they, to they'd do be right. it. Exactly. They'd be right to do it. Um, and so this whole, you know, reading volume one is to me just this horror story of saying, is there not one of you that has a patriotic bone in your body? Is there not a single person in this story who isn't a completely narcissistic, self-absorbed, opportunistic creep? <laughs> and the answer is No. no. Because it flows from um, the head. <laughs> it just well, and you know the other thing too is this: this should really teach a lesson to all the people who were going to bat, uh, you know, for the the brave journalism of WikiLeaks that Sean Hannity loves so oh. much. Uh, you know, WikiLeaks was and is a Russian front. 
And I said it years ago and, you know, people kind of rolled their eyes and now that's just accepted um, that, you know, Assange was fronting for the Russians. And we're going to get to that same point. And that's outlined in the report, by the way. The whole, I mean, it's there in plain language, folks. It's like, we're not making this up. This isn't, you know, us kvetching about what we think or what we believe. It's outlined in. We're not on a limb here. We're on a concrete foundation. (laughs) Right. And what's interesting about this, too, is that, again, the people who want to defend the president or the, you know, uh, the people who are just asking questions. You know, I had a I I went after Ross do that pretty hard the other day about an article. I'm glad you did. I like Ross, but you I I agree with you on this one. knew better. I mean, that's what what made me angry. But he knows better. He's not just asking questions. And, you know, this, 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 this defense of the president all revolves around, well, we accept, you know, that the Russians attacked us, and we accept that the Russians did this, and we accept the Russians did that. And yet, when pressed, they start rejecting that, even though it's in the Mueller report. I mean, the, the parts of the Mueller report that are not arguable, because the president rejects them, they end up backfilling and saying, well, maybe it wasn't like that. And maybe they framed Carter Page, and maybe the FBI infiltrated the campaign. I mean, it just, you know, the report, here's a, here's a good alternative. Sit down and read the report. And I think people don't want to do that because they, you know, they would rather not know. I think that, I think we really are in that, to that point now. Yeah. Where there are people just going, you know what, I, I, I've taken the narrative. I've drunk the Kool-Aid for two years. I've I've doubled down so many times that I can't count. And now I just don't want to know. And I got to get through this somehow. And 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 that's how you pave the road to tyranny. I mean, it just allows you to be open to being ruled and losing your freedoms because people are unwilling to stand up for what's right and what what's right in front of them. And that that's part of what scares the shit out of me about what's happening and watching the Republican. I I never thought able this. I never thought, you know, and I, um, you know, scares the shit out of me is a good, I think that's a good description <laughs> because I think I'm, I just am not used to hearing my fellow Americans talk this way uh, right. uh, of being this accepting of authority and these kinds of shenanigans. Um, you know, I understand, <clears throat> excuse me, I understand why people don't like James Comey. You know, he's smug. He can be kind of sanctimonious. Uh, you know, he's trying to make Reinhold Niebuhr a thing when nobody really, you know, <laughs> that's that's an answer to a question nobody asked. You know, yeah. on the other hand, the piece he wrote where, where he talks about what you just said, where you start off by just being silent and then you defend little pieces of it and then you try to equivocate. And by the end of it, you know, as he points out in this op-ed that he wrote last week, this is how Trump ends up just eating your soul. Yeah. Yep. Because you, you've wandered into it step by step. Um, as people know, I'm a big fan of the screw tape letters. And, yeah. you know, C.S. Lewis has a great line in there. He says, sometimes the best road to hell is the gradual, gentle one that just slopes downhill with no signposts or warnings. Mm-hmm. And I suggest uh, that you I'm glad you brought up C.S. Lewis for people who n- want to read some things that are somewhat scary, but cathartic. <laughs> C.S. Lewis was very prescient. A lot of what he said and wrote about is um, 
it, it applies to what's happening today. And and there's a great C.S. Lewis uh, account on Twitter that you can follow. I, oh, it's mm. called like C.S. Lewis's Thoughts or something like that. And and I, I would recommend to people they read they read a, a one just one piece that Lewis wrote called Screw Tape Proposes a Toast. Yeah. Where he talks about democracy and how democracy just withers under people's arrogance and and narcissism and. Yes insane belief that you know everybody's opinion is equal because we're kind of at that moment yeah, that's now right. that's right um you know that's a you were we, we were talking um off air before we went live about your frustration with a piece that rich lowry wrote um and you know i i've been reading the national review for the majority of my adult life you know, Bill Buckley was shaped a lot of my conservatism and, uh, you know, a lot of the conservative philosophy that I was taught early on. I always say I'm kind of a combination between a like Jack Kemp, Reagan, Bill Buckley, um, you know, re- Republican for modern terms, conservative. Um, of course, yep. if you go back to, you know, like Russell Kirk and stuff like that, more of the philosophical conservatism stuff, but just like modern day conservatism. And to see the National Review go from being the publication that published the Never Trump um, essays in, during the election saying I, all of these people who said there's no way this guy can be president and here's why because he goes against everything we believe to having people like Rich Lowry now turning around and say, and defending this and, and being an apologist I, I can't Andy McCarthy he's another one yeah. I, you know there, thankfully there's a couple Hugh you know, Hewitt like, Hugh is I, I, well you know again these are, these are opportunists in my opinion because they saw what happened to the folks like Eric Erickson or Glenn Beck, who decided to, to go against Trump and then lost all of their or, or the entire weekly standard. Yeah, the whole weekly standard, right, got upended yeah. because of it. So they made, a, they made a personal business decision to sell their souls to remain relevant and profitable. And at I, bargain it drives rates. me crazy. It drives at me crazy. Bar- they, they not only sold their souls, they sold them at bargain basement rates. Right. Because, you know, uh, if since we're being uh, highfalutin and quoting Lewis, <laughs> you know, the other is that Lewis also says, you know, the thing that really makes the devil happy is to get the man soul and give him nothing right uh you know and i <laughs> that's think that's a good one it's you know to get the man soul to give him nothing in return that's really the thing you're after and i mean really the return on this is so small and and i think here here's what i think is happening among uh, among our friends i think who are not opportunists because i i mean let's try and be fair-minded about this i think there are people on the right who have really genuinely convinced themselves that if Trump goes down somehow, um, you know, they hate him. They think he's awful. They believe all the stuff they wrote when they wrote, you know, the against Trump stuff. But they have convinced themselves that there will be this kind of leftist apocalypse. Right. And that it'll be like 2024 will be President Ocasio-Cortez and Vice President Omar. Right. And, you know, half the country will be wearing burqas and the other half the country will be undergoing mandatory gay marriages on their way to an abortion clinic. (laughs) And, and, you know, this is just I, I think, you know, this is what happens when you just get so invested in this. First of all, I think it's what happens when you lose any sense of perspective about time. And I think this is especially a problem for younger people because, you know, I've lived through the world ending four times already. Um, you know, I was 14 when Nixon resigned. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I still remember the first time there would never be another Republican Party. Um, and I and I think, 
it's also a way of just rationalizing this endless doubling down because you can't get away from this tribal identity. Um, I think that the other, I think that a lot of the other people, as you say, are just opportunists. They've made mm -hmm. a business decision, um, but none of this is going to pan out. I mean, right. I just it don't, I well. don't see how this ends well. Right. Exactly. I don't see how it ends well. There is no scenario, in my opinion, where any of this ends well, which leads me to the question um, about a constitutional crisis because you like I you we unfortunately subject ourselves to Twitter uh, regularly and that means Donald Trump's tweets and over mm. the weekend he was tweeting that this new thing now um, in addition to the fact that this dangerous rhetoric of there's been a coup attempt and an overthrow of my of my presidency attempt he's been spewing this very ugly language now it's graduated to Oh, uh, I should have more time. You know, I, I reparations. Jerry Falwell tweeted yeah. this crazy tweet about how the president should get reparations, in, which it would be two years back of his presidency because of the Russian hoax. Uh, this is insanity. And how sad is it, by the way, for those of us who remember his father, and I was not a big fan of his father, it tells you, I'll, I'll just leave it at this and say Jerry Falwell Jr. is not half the man his father was, and you can take that any way you want. Yeah, I Because I didn't, think his, I didn't think his father was that great either, right. but I mean, it's hard to, there, are, there just aren't that many people in America at this point in public life that are worse than Jerry Falwell Jr. I'm telling you, it's, un what do you, th do you, do you think, I mean, there's people out here, and I, I've been concerned about this since Trump got a for the first time, are you concerned that there we, there's a threat to the peaceful transition of power? No, Trump loses. No, and I'll and I'll tell you why because I have a huge amount of faith in the people in federal service, in the military, and law enforcement who have sworn an oath to the Constitution. Mm -hmm. um, what I think will happen is if Trump decides to do this and says this wasn't a fair election and it was rigged. Um, you're going to get some goobers out there in the streets with rifles that are going to get in a lot of trouble with their local law, law enforcement and police departments um, because they're dumb. It'll be like the guy who showed up at, at the Comet Pizzeria looking for the pedophile prison. But he shot uh, people. Uh, yeah. I mean, thank God no one was hurt. But right. that's what I'm saying is I, I mean, I, but the idea that, you know, Trump's going to barricade himself in the White House <laughs> with a Praetorian guard of, you know, paratroopers or something, I, I, I just – that the fact that, but I think the more wait important a minute, thing, the though, fact on, that we wait, even on, have to Tom, talk wait. about it. He, he he said that he's got the military, yeah. he's got the law enforcement officers, he's got the bikers for Trump. He in he, his he mind, he also says he's <laughs> one of the smartest people in the world. He, <laughs> in his I mind, mean, he's his, got right. the Praetorian he, Guard, right? If things he, go, the he wrong may well way, believe might, that, you know. <laughs> and it tells you how far, how far we've fallen, even though we're laughing about it, that we would even have this conversation I know. No, I is know. completely fucking insane. It That's is. probably the first F-bomb I've ever dropped in public like that. Oh, but well, it is completely – Tara, Tara, you're my – I have crossed the line and gone over the Rubicon with you. But that is completely fucking insane. Yeah. And, and it's not – I mean, it's, you know, the idea that we're even talking about it is just so tragic um, because there are people egging him on. I know. And and they really believe this. They really believe that there's some kind of deep. St First of all, they believe that the that people in the government are so organized that they could actually pull this off. Right. Like this, oh, those are deep state coup. Uh, clearly, you've never met the government that can't, like, deliver your mail with your address right on it. Right. That, uh, you know, it's funny that you say that because um, my friend and colleague at CNN, Josh Campbell, who is a former 
former FBI special agent. He was James Comey's special assistant uh, for a year and a half. He was there through this whole, uh, you know, crazy firing and all of that stuff. And he's um, written a book that's coming out soon. And I, I got an advanced copy of it. And in there, he talks a little bit about um, the same thing. He, he knocks down, he has a chapter about the deep state and he knocks down that notion. And he says basically the same thing that right. the government is not organized enough <laughs> in order to, Listen, to pull this deep- off. <laughs> if the deep state were that competent, Donald Trump would not be president exactly. right now. Exactly. You know, I mean, this is if this is as if this is as rough as the deep state gets, then I, then I'm you know then I'm almost worried about whether we can handle the Russians and the Chinese. Uh, this is but this is what I think people comfort themselves with. They they create conspiracy theories um, because it helps to rationalize all the kind of lousy things they think and all the crappy stuff that they just want to believe. And so they, you know, they don't say, well, I don't really understand how government works and I just want to get even with a lot of people and I'm, I have a lot of retrograde racial attitudes. Instead, they go to Facebook and they say, well, I'm just fighting the deep state because I'm the hero of my own action movie now. Yeah. Now, given that you are a Russian expert and you recognize some of their tactics and what they do, it, it, it's when you watch this and you see the way that propaganda is used in the way that Trump uses it very effectively um, is, you know, I've talked about this before and and Asha wrote a piece about this, too. And we talked about it, about the idea of reflexive control theory and what the Russians, how the Russians employ that. Can, Can you explain a little bit of what that is and how you see the examples of that being done with their election meddling and how they're probably going to do it again? So people can get a sense of when they see it, they know what they're looking for and recognize it. Yeah, I'm a little skeptical because I think I'm still unwilling to let American citizens off the hook for being stupid. (laughs) You know, when people say, well, the Russians influenced us by putting a lot of stuff on Facebook. That's like saying we're a country of people that got really fat because the Russians financed a lot of fast food joints. (laughs) Don't eat there. Right. You know, if you don't want to be influenced by Russian, uh, you know, by the Russians getting on Facebook, don't get your news from Facebook. Now, with that said, what the Russians do is they identify what they think are the hot spots and the weak points in a society. And they rather than trying to convert you to thinking something else, they they want to push you to really get lost in what you think already. If that makes any sense, yeah, so it's, you, it's like doubling down. It's reinforcing right. what you believe it's, already. It's creating right. an it's echo a chamber. Huge, exactly. It's a huge exercise in turning confirmation bias into a kind of psychotic anti-politics, where um, you simply lose your ability to talk to anybody else. You don't accept the fairness of anything that doesn't go your way. I think this is something we don't talk about enough in American politics now, where people think that. And, and I'm going to say, you know, I, I know everybody hates the both sides thing these days, but I'm both sizing this one. People on the left have become in some ways just as bad where they think that anything that doesn't go their way is automatically rigged. There are people to this day that cannot accept that Hillary Clinton was a bad candidate who lost that election on her own. Right. Right. You it's, know, it's there's certain. Fault. It's Comey's right, fault. Or it's Comey's fault or it's the Russians' fault or it's – you know, they cannot accept that Hillary Clinton just ran a really craptacular campaign <laughs> uh, and that she's just a bad candidate. I mean we all knew this going in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we've all – so the Russians take this and they say, look, um, you know, you – 
you you uh, have backward you're you're a racist fine we'll put out racist memes um you know you're anti-catholic we'll put out that the pope um um, endorsed Hillary Clinton. You know, they find these weak spots and instead of trying to convert you, and this is, by the way, when Senator John Kennedy the other day said, well, the Russians have been doing this for 60 years. That's not true. The Soviet Union had its own propaganda. It was old school. They were trying to flood us with copies of, you know, the Daily Worker to tell us how awesome communism, communism was. Is, yeah. You know, nobody, I mean, you know, I miss the old Soviet Union because their propaganda efforts were so bad. Yeah, they were laughing. Um, you know, that they hail, welcome the Red Army in Afghanistan, you know, our brother liberators. Um, <laughs> have, you seen now, the, have you seen the death of Stalin? Uh, it's what a great movie. What a great what movie. What a great movie. Armando and, and about... I'm a fan. He's amazing. He's the creator <laughs> of Veep and also of the, the British comedy in the thick of it. And it, it, the death of Stalin is brilliant. Well, since I'm a Russia guy, I'm sure people will ask this and they'll ask if it's historically accurate. I'll say it's about 60 or 70 percent historically accurate that in much? terms of what happened. Yeah, well, I mean – um, the two things that really didn't happen is the army didn't just storm in there and, you know, start shooting at people. Right. Uh, and the other is that there was actually a long lapse. In some ways, the what happened, I guess I'm going to ruin the, the ending for you. The guy who gets killed actually in some ways dies a more ignominious death um, in, in a basement pleading for his life than the – than the one that they show, which is a little bit heroic and dramatic. Right. Um, so, you know, but but a lot of that stuff about, you know, the buzzer under the table yeah. and the arm, that, that's all real. That happened. Oh, my God. That, uh, that's, so, you know, this, that makes it, it really I'm, is I'm hilarious. I'm going to watch it again. I saw it yeah. on a plane coming back from Mexico uh, celebrating my husband's birthday a couple of weeks ago because I'd been meaning to watch it. And I was laughing out loud, hysterical on the flight. And my husband thought I was nuts. And he's like, why? Because he, he can't hear what I'm watching, you know. He just sees it. It looks like some kind of crazy Russian movie, you know, comedy yeah. movie. And I'm like, no, no, no. I had to explain it, but it, it's it's really well worth. The well, watch. let's just say, since since again, we're on a podcast and we can drop f bombs. Yes. You, you you need to watch it just for the moment where Jeffrey Tambor says, "Is this why everybody's at talking to me like they want to fuck my sister?" Yeah. <laughs> um, which is really one of the great mo- moments uh, and one of the great lines yes. in the movie. Yeah, and Jeffrey and Tambor I, is is brilliant in this. Uh, as are, I mean, most of the performances. I, I literally are. did a spit take yeah. when I was watching yes. that. I mean, I was watching the movie and I was taking a trip and I literally just like spewed <laughs> soda at that moment. We're, so. told, we're, we're nerding, we're nerding out on it. We're because, nerding out. You know, but um, I, so- I think it's important to do that because <clears throat> this is such heavy stuff. You know what I mean? Like we're really talking about like threats to the foundation of our republic here and you know without some levity we'll all lose it i think if we don't if we don't laugh because you know going back to something you asked me earlier and this does link up with where we are now on where you know our colleagues and former republican friends are about the Mueller report you know all kidding aside, I mean, volume one is really horrifying. It is. I mean, it's horrifying. It's something that you never thought you would read as an American citizen. I mean, this, you know, the people that are involved here from whether it's Mike Flynn or Paul Manafort, these are all people you worked in government service. Mm-hmm. You, you know, this, these are all people that if you had encountered them in your job, you're supposed to go down the hall and fill out a threat report on these people. That's right. You're supposed to actually turn in people like that as a menace to national security uh, because in terms of insider threats to security, these people just check all the boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But yeah, and and there were many people uh, in the Trump campaign and Trump's orbit who came in contact with these kinds of shady characters that should have been. And nobody picked up a phone. And nobody. Nobody picks up a phone. And And that's the you know, if you read it and said, okay, it's just Flynn and he's in deep, you know, with the with the Turks or he owes some money. So he got a little too cozy with the Russians. Then you'd say, okay, it's one guy who screwed up and he kind of hit it. It's all, it's kind of like murder on the Orient Express. Yes. At the end of the book, you find it's all of them. Yep. Uh, another spoiler I've just ruined for everybody, but you know, <laughs> it's, I mean, it really is a frightening thing where you're reading this and you're saying, is there not one patriot in this entire organization? And, and there isn't. And as far as I'm concerned, there still isn't. The other day I got a lot of people mad when I said, if you're still defending all this stuff, I doubt your patriotism mm-hmm. because we're not supposed to say that. That's that's like the, you know, that's like the C word. We're talking about f bombs. That's like yeah. the C word, or you know, the big boiling pot of water that you know you're just not supposed to touch. But but I, you know what? Though? How, I'm could out you, of, how could you explain it in any other way? I, that's what was the thing. patriotic I'm out of about that? Right? What what? Name one aspect of Volume One that was patriotic on the pe- by by the people who were involved in it. There, you can't. You know, I, you can't, and that's the thing. I'm just out of uh, explanations. And when some, and when people go out there and they say, you know, we don't really need to hear from Mueller. Um, you know, Barr didn't lie to anybody. He didn't mislead anybody. I say to myself, are you protecting the Republican Party, or are you genuinely trying to find out the truth about one of the most daring political attacks by one of our most dedicated enemies since the end of the Cold War? Which is it? And it seems to me that most of these people are just trying to protect the Republican Party, again, either out of, as you pointed out, either out of opportunism or because they have somehow convinced themselves that, you know, that it's just le- a leftist Armageddon uh, if somehow Donald Trump fails. And what they don't realize is, and I, I think what's going to happen is we're in for a long period of a leftward shift in American politics. Anyway, I predicted this four years ago. Yeah, the pendulum swing is going to be, I, I, I'm concerned about the, the pendulum well, swing. Well, he's ruined. Talk about this is a guy whose expertise, I don't think the president knows very much, but I will acknowledge the one thing he seems to know in some kind of lizard brain way is marketing. Yes. This is a guy who sticks his name on everything. Well, if you're talking about brands, conservatism and republicanism are brands that are now completely toxic. Uh, so is Christianity, in my opinion. Oh, well, you from know. From the evangelical perspective, the evangelical, I should say Christianity, evangelicals. Right, political. And, Polit- and we should even right. be more precise because we should say political evangelic- yes. evangelicalism because I think there's a big difference between a guy like Eric Metaxas, um, and, you know, since we're on radio, can't see the faces we're probably both making, um, and somebody that I genuinely respect like David French. Right. Right. Um, you know, those are two fair. different yes. kinds of people. But yeah, political evangelicalism, I think, is over. Uh, and and now it's, you know, I think it's hit its high watermark. Um, yes. I, as a Republican, I was never comfortable with it. I'm from the Northeast. I'm Greek Orthodox. It's not my tradition. It's not my culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Reaganites in 84 pushed those folks away when they were saying when they were even by 84, the evangelicals were already uh, jumping all over Reagan. Hey, you didn't you know, you haven't outlawed abortion and you don't have school and prayer and, you know, you don't seem to hate gays as much as we do. Um, but but now I think they've just been 
outed as we just want what we want. We like people who look and think and act like us and we hate everybody else. And I, and yeah, I think that it's, that's, yeah, it's un, it's that's unfortunate. just over. As much whether there was some merit to the family values, values, voters part, you know, um, uh, portion of the Republican Party, that part is completely out of control. They've turned themselves into hypocrites in ways that I can't even begin to explain. And um, every day I catch myself saying, are you fucking kidding me with some of the things these people say? And when Brad Parscale, for, for, yeah, when Brad Par- Parscale, perfect oh. example, called Trump the savior, he's a savior right. from God. Only God could send such oh. a savior. And he, he's I, not the only one. He's got millions you know, of these people. I, I, I'm not an expert in Christian theology, but I'm pretty sure that God only sent one savior. <laughs> right, that's right. You know, I'm, I mean, I don't want to, you know, get way over my skis I here know. on how many saviors and there were, but I'm, I'm my last count that I checked, there was one. Unbelievable. And, uh, and, well. and yet, you know, he. It's people. People lap it up because yes. it makes them feel better about themselves. That's right. That's right. And in it, which is a sad commentary, because the the ramifications of this uh, will far outlast any tenure of Donald Trump's presidency, whether it's for God forbid eight years. Uh, I just, I just. I think the damage is done. I mean, yeah. I think no, if it were all to end tomorrow. You know, if somehow tomorrow everybody in Congress just walked in and said, "Okay, we're done," uh, and he's out, I, I still think that we would be repairing the damage. And I and I think not just uh, ob- the obvious national security damage, which is going to take you know a long time to fix, but I think that the damage to our culture, to our constitutional norms, mm-hmm. to the just the, our kind of political environment, I think has been uh, extreme. And and uh, it's not yet mortal. It's not irreversible. But I, uh, you know, the other night I um, was talking about this. Uh, I was sharing a, a segment on uh, the last word with Evan McMullen, and we both ended up saying, you know, we're both. This is the most worried we've ever been about the state of American democracy. Yes, and I sit on the board of Evan McMullen and Mindy Finn's group, Stand Up Republic, uh, and I, I'm, it's an honor for me to to assist them in trying to preserve these democratic norms, institutions, and ideals that are under threat on a daily basis. And I also proudly cast a vote for Evan McMullen for president. And I, um, well, as a, I couldn't bring myself to vote for Hillary, and, or in Doug, I damn sure wasn't voting for Trump, and it was just a moral issue for me. And I just well, even I, then I, I didn't think it could be as bad this bad. Well, just to you know, this is a something I, I always get thrown at me that I voted for Hillary. I was a never Hillary, never Trump guy, and was going to vote third party until the day Donald Trump said the election's going to be rigged, and then I said, okay, I'm going to add to the popular vote total to make this convincing. And I, you know, I'm kind of glad I did because that popular vote total really drives them crazy. It does. Uh, it does. And I th- and that's why I did it. I said, you know, if you're going to argue that this election is rigged, then I'm going to do everything I can to make this vote as to impose as much clarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with my one little, you know, otherwise insignificant vote on this, you know, the thing about worrying about our democracy, I, I have a friend who spent a, a lifetime in the diplomatic corps and he said, you know, we would always go overseas. All of us who are Americans would go overseas. We go through all these troubled places. I've been to the Soviet Union. I, as a boy, I was in Greece during the regime of the colonels. Um, you know, we, we go to a lot of places that have a lot of problems. Then you come home and you say, and, and, you know, here I am back in this very stable, you know, I mean, it's just a different feeling when you get back. Um, I don't feel that anymore. Hmm. 
I mean, I go to other places. I mean, I, you know, I go to, I go to Canada and I come back here and I say, how, how can my country be more messed up than, you know, Canada or the UK or France or Greece or wherever I've been. Uh, and, um, you know, that's, it's something for different a guy, about for a guy that. at 58, you know, yeah. I'm 58 years old. I mean, I've never had that feeling before in my life yeah. to say that, you know, we are in some ways more messed up than the rest of the world because that just was never, even during Watergate, right? even during the Cold War, it didn't feel like the, I mean, I shouldn't say that I was 14 years old, but it, it, it's, I mean, I was in high school when America had an unelected president and vice president. People forget that that happened, That's but right. it mattered we got through it because the unelected president was Gerald Ford, who was a, an American hero of immense decency. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're just in this you know, situation where um, you come back to the United States and you say, well, I've gone from one set of problems over there to a similar set of problems over here. Who do you do you see anyone um, as we as we wrap this up? Do you, do you see anyone in, in, in the near political future who could be that that political hero to kind of right the ship? You know, I, I'm uh, hesitant to say anything about any Democrat because any Democrat I like will immediately um, get jumped all over on Twitter. <laughs> you, know, you don't because, have to name uh, any names. I'm a, yeah. You can just um, say I, whether you potentially I, see I that. Think, I think um, – I, I, unfortunately, I used to think there might be some people like that in the Republican Party. I don't believe that anymore. I agree with you on that. Uh, there, you know, I used to hope that some – Somewhere out of the wreckage, there, you know, one person was going to stand up and say, uh, damn it all, I've had enough of this. And, I, and, you know, damn the consequences. And I don't care if you people don't vote for me again, uh, but somebody's got to go down Pennsylvania Avenue the way that the Republicans did to Nixon. Yelling. You know, in 74. And yelling and yelling, saying, this is stop. over. Yelling stop yes. thwart history, which is what Bill Buckley used to command that we do as conservatives when no one else would. We were supposed to be the ones to yell stop thwart history and how, how we've abdicated that responsibility. I don't so I don't see that happening from anywhere inside the Republican Party. Um, I think there are people within the Democratic Party and in the and among the independents who, of course, we are now the largest political movement in America, uh, the unpartied people, um, the unaffiliated. And I think the unaffiliated, yes, the homeless. Uh, <laughs> and um, and I think that there are, you know, there I think that there are people out there. But I also think that the Democrats, in their usual way, are trying every possible way to screw up this election mm-hmm. by with their with a circular firing squad and purity tests. You know, I, if maybe this is the way to finish in talking about the Democrats. Uh, I have made common cause with the Democrats on the assumption that we all think this is an existential crisis mm-hmm. of government. Right. I kind of wish the Democrats would start acting like it's an existential crisis of government. It's not an opportunity to get everything you want from a very left-leaning agenda. That's not what this year is about. This this time out is about putting the republic back together and saving the constitution and then we can all argue in 2021 about green new deals and health care and all exactly. that exactly that's what you i've know? said that's what i've said you know sure i mean i can't go the uh ocasio cortez wing of the democratic party if they start you know talking that crazy shit i'm out i can't do it but if you they if, if the democrat nominee is someone like Joe Biden, I will vote for him all the way, and we can argue about policy specifics later. Um, but right. you know, I, some of the others. I, I, it doesn't even have to. 
it doesn't even have to be Biden. I've, I've basically said that the only Democrat that really make would make me dig in my heels, and she has no chance, is Tulsi Gabbard, because I think she has a lot of the same problems yeah. that Trump does. I, but uh, I think you know, even that Bernie. I, Bernie is a is insane, and you know, I, I I can't. I that that would be I think a landslide. I agree with Chris Matthews on that. That if the Democrats fuck around and they nominate someone like Bernie Sanders, you can just hand the presidency right back to Trump in a landslide. I, I was asked to, I was asked if I would vote for Bernie in 2016, and I said, look, if it comes down to this uh, and I have to put up with four years of a bumbling, incompetent, would-be socialist who's going to get – because remember, Bernie's legislative record is pretty much non-existent. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know. Um, this is, this is not an effective person. So if, I, you know, <laughs> if, if, if that's what it takes, um, I would hate every minute. I lived in Vermont. I was one of Bernie's constituents. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I, and I know he's um, – you know, Vermont is a um, well, you know, it's a lovely state, but the idea that somehow it's a socialist paradise is just uh, not true. It's a high taxing state, mm-hmm. but it's the kind of place where very wealthy people landscape the very poor people out of their line of sight sometimes. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, the the idea that Bernie, I mean, if Bernie becomes the nominee, I will be furious. I will. I, I guess I will have to. I would have to decide how close it was, um, but I would probably end up casting that vote again, just so that the president couldn't claim that it was unfair. But if the Democrats do that, then the next thing you do in the next four years is to make sure that the Democrats don't win another election right. and that something else happens. Right. Um, because this is their the chance ship. to govern. It is. This is. They've they've earned it. The Republicans have thrown away their shot. They've screwed up, and you know, in a in a democracy, when one party screws up and they've shown that they're not competent, the other party gets its shot, I think. And if the Democrats mess that up, that's on, that's on them because the, there is no lower hanging fruit right now right, that's than right. going up against Donald Trump. That's right. Um, well, on that note, uh, I have to, it would be remiss of me not to ask you because I am a huge Jeopardy fan and I know that you are a Jeopardy champion. And uh, for those who are also Jeopardy nerds like like we are. I have to ask you what you think of the current Jeopardy cha- champion. Uh, what's his name? James Holsauer. Yeah. And you know, I, 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 I'm fascinated. I root for him every night. Someone wrote an article saying that they, they think this is ruining Jeopardy. And I thought yes. that was just kind of a hater argument. I didn't, I didn't get what the problem was. I think what he's done has made the game more exciting. It's interesting. And if you can't, oh, keep we, up so we're going to end on such a note of disagreement. Really? Yes, because Chuck, you, the piece you're talking about is Chuck Lane's piece, and yeah. I, I've actually talked about this. For, uh, I was on I was on Smirconish's Michael Smirconish's show, and I agree with Chuck Lane. I you think do? you know Jeopardy. Yes, Jeopardy is a game for amateurs. It's the game where you find out that the school teacher down the street or the transit cop, one of the biggest champions of the game in my day, was a transit cop named Frank Spangenberg. You find out that these ordinary people around you have a lot of cool knowledge. This is a professional gambler who once you get through a couple of games there's i was retired at five games back in the old days that's what they right, did you were right. not you were they undefeated the rules. and the reason that was a bad idea is once you've played even two or three games you have a mechanical reflexive advantage on the buzzer that is that other people don't have oh that's interesting It becomes, I mean, you just get the rhythm of the game. And by the time you've played, 
you know, three or four games, uh, you know, if, if you've played it correctly and you're paying attention to it, I just don't think it says anything good about us that we're cheering on a professional gambler who's kind of playing the money ball version of Jeopardy, you know, but he has I think to know, but at least he knows the answers to the questions though, just because he's yes, changing. He does, you, know I, I mean? not, like you can't take that away from him. He's not a dumb guy. He's very bright. He's one of the great players of the game in terms of his knowledge, but I'll let you in on another little secret. The Jeopardy test that you have to pass to get on the show is really hard. And so pretty much all the people on that show are just a couple of degrees of smart away from each other Mm. because everybody else gets just the the test. At least when I took it back in the nineties had like a 90% fail rate an 85 to 90% fail. When I took the test with 160 people in Burlington, like 16 of us walked out. Wow. And so what happens, and I think one of the reasons they had to retire you at five is that at that many games, you start to build up a natural comfort. Um, I don't think people understand how terrifying it is to be the guy going in against the existing champion. I had to beat an existing winner to, to win my first game. Mm-hmm. And so this, you know, by at this point, he's just like Ken Jennings. And for the record, I thought it was boring when Ken Jennings was winning. And he because won 70, what, 74 games, right? Games. He was yeah. on for like three months. Right. I because, remember that. And then. And then when he lost, it's because he made a mistake. Right. right. And I think that's what's going to happen with Holtar. Nobody's going to beat him. He's we almost lost the other day. He almost lost the other day. And right. it came down to final jeopardy. And um, I, you know, he, he happened to get it right and bet correctly. And the other guy got it wrong. And he was lucky. But it, it was. I, I have both won and lost on one question in final jeopardy. Do you remember what it was? Uh, the one I won on um, was a very convoluted question that was basically asking you what play Lincoln was watching when he was shot. Mm. Uh, the one I lost on uh, was, uh, and I'm so ashamed to admit this because I'm part Greek, was about um, <laughs> Greece. And I overthought the question, which is one of the cardinal sins of Jeopardy. You always yep. go with your first instinct. Yep. And I would have won, except that my opponent didn't bet anything. And I turned to her, I looked, I said, after the game, I looked at her, she said, I don't know anything about this subject. I didn't bet anything. And so, she, and so she beat me. Um, but uh, I think, you know, letting people play until they lose built a natural advantage into returning champions that Holzhauer figured out. He figured out where the daily doubles are. He figured out the, the kind of algorithm of how much he could bet. And there have been some games of his that I've watched where I've done the math and realized that by, you know, 15 minutes into the game, there is never going to be enough money left on the board right, to beat him. Right, right. And, and I just don't, I just, I, I said to Michael Smirkanish, this is about as interesting as mounting a camera inside the sports book room at Caesars. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I mean, professional gamblers are good at what they do, but I don't want to watch them go to work every day. Right, right. Well, I guess that, that's a that's a fair uh, alternative perspective. And, and I respect it coming from someone who's actually played the game and been there. I didn't think about the built in advantage of uh, timing of, you know, when to when you buzzer in. And oh, yeah, it's, it's clear let, that, let that just... there's something to that. But, to, you know, let me that, just tell your, your yeah. listeners that the thing you can't see at home is there's a light that goes on off camera that tells you that your buzzer is hot, that, that the buzzers are open for, for business. You can't buzz in until Alex is done speaking and that light goes on. Oh. So the next time. Uh, so getting the interval right of when that light goes on, watch Holtzauer. And what you'll realize is 
he plays the, you know, this is going to sound terrible to say about a man who has a terrible disease, but the right way to play is to ignore Alex completely. Interesting. He, he, you know, you pick the category, you read the question on the board, you formulate in your mind whether you can answer this, and then you stare at that light and you wait for it to go on and hit the buzzer. And, and that reflex from the light to your thumb is something you develop. I mean, by my third game, I opened my third game literally by running a category. Like just boom, 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 boom. Uh-huh. My opponents walked out and I said, hi, welcome to the game. Bang, 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 bang. Uh, and by the first break, I was just like running roughshod over them. Well, that's um, that's great insight. I, I love it. Like I love Jeopardy. I've been watching it since I was like seven years old. And I pride myself and when I'm able to get the final Jeopardy questions, because usually they're hard. So when I get yeah. one, I'm like, yes, I got, <laughs> I got final Jeopardy. Final Jeopardy terrified me every time. Uh, <laughs> well, it seems now like the categories are a little, bit more um they're just broader like before they used to be like five categories and that was it it was like 12th century english literature right and, you know like really well jeopardy things. loves things like geography and presidents yeah. and opera and yeah. stuff like that but but um and look again holzauer it's interesting if you watch him i mean he boned up on some basic stuff he also misses some really obvious questions just right. like ken jennings did yes. when he finally lost i mean yeah. the guy he's a great player but he figured out early on that there's also a psychological overvantage uh, uh, advantage of just overawing your opponents from the minute they walk out there and you know he's good at the game but again i i kind of like you know finding out that somebody you know like i said you know a school teacher in reno turns out to be a really smart person Mm -hmm. um and this to me is just a matter of kind of checking my watch and saying at some point he's gonna bet too much and he'll have a bad run of questions but it won't be because anybody really beats him but isn't that isn't that just part of the game though I mean, I kind of feel I, like that's part. Personally, of the I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I mean, I when I almost lost in the middle of my my five game run, it was partly because I, I remember turning and looking at the guy next. I still remember his name was Jim, and I said, "Damn, this Jim, this guy is a smart, you know what, man? This guy is really. I mean, I'm I'm having to work for this, right? And um, you know." I think that again, that makes the game more interesting. Um, I, I think I think Chuck's article in the Post. It, it's he, I think he's right. I think it says something about us as a culture that we're now just we just want to see people win and win and win at all costs because um, we like winners and we want to see people walk off with big barrels of money and we're not really interested in seeing our friends and neighbors, you know, because I feel bad for the other people that go against them. For them, this is the, the one shot in a lifetime. Right. And then by the, you know, by the third, and but 10 minutes in, yeah. it's over. They're done. <laughs> right. They're toasted. Right. There's, and there's because, no shot. And you can see their faces. They're just deflated because yeah. they're like, well, well, well we're just here now. That means that he doesn't get a good competition either because five minutes in, you can see them just losing their will to live. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I'll tell you this, when I, by the time I'd gotten to my third or fourth game, somebody, one of the contestant handlers said to me, he kind of laughed. He said, yeah, nobody, they've heard that you just stomped on like, you know, your way through two games. Nobody wants to play you now. Now that was me winning at like two or three games. Imagine yeah, knowing know. you're going up against the guy who's won 22 games. I hear you. Maybe it's just it's the competitive. Not fair. I played competitive sports, and maybe I just feel like if you're if you were good enough to get there, and then this person's the champion, then you know he's not he's not cheating. He's not doing anything that's that's um, you know. No, out but of he's bounds. gone pro. 
But he did. I say I would argue that after five games, he's gone pro. To me, this is like watching the NBA Dream Team in the Olympics. So okay, so I mean, I guess I hear I hear what you're saying. I hear. I think you're. It's kind of one of those things where it's like the purest of the game, where it's like, well, we kind of like the the way of it being a a more even right. competition versus having someone who's coming now and they're like. The I think Jeopardy player. is a social event, not a sport. Got it. Got it. Okay, right, that's right. the, we'll maybe agree, that's we'll the difference. Agree to disagree on it. <laughs> Benjamin Benjamin Morris at five thirty eight tweeted. I tweeted at him about this when he was talking about it, and he said, "Look, you're just lamenting that it's no longer a game for amateurs." And I said, right. "That's right. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah, uh, oh, just like I don't like the fact that the Olympics. I don't watch the Olympics anymore because they're not amateurs. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess that that's fair enough. Fair enough. We can agree. We All can right, end right. on a note of friendly disagreement on that, yeah. and and continue <laughs> our our love with for, for Jeopardy, regardless of what happens with Mr. Professional Sports Better Holtzauer. <laughs> I wonder if the game, I just, I, I, you know, totally aside from James Holtzauer, I wonder if Jeopardy can survive without Alex Trebek. I don't think it can. You know, that's the other thing. Yeah. I think this is a bad way for the series to end, you know, with a with a literally a professional gambler from Vegas, like blowing up the board in Alex's. I just don't, to me, it's, um, you know, I, I, I watched enough of it because I knew I'd be asked to cut. People kept asking me about this guy, and I just got bored with it, and I just stopped watching. Yeah. Um, so. Well, I hate to see. But their ratings are up. Yeah, by the way. they are. The ratings their are ratings up a lot. Are up, and I, I agree with Chuck Lane. This doesn't say anything good about us, but, you know, um, if your goal is to generate ratings and money, then, you know, on the other hand, the Kardashians generate ratings and money, too, <laughs> and I don't think that's a good thing either. So. But, but one rots your brain and the other one makes you smarter. <laughs> That's true enough. That's true enough. (laughs) Oh, God. Tom Nichols, it's always a pleasure to have you. It's so much fun. We get to learn a lot. We get to kvetch. You get to curse. It's it's great. You you are welcome back on Honestly I can't let my daughter listen to this podcast. She (laughs) listens to everything I do, and now I'm going to have to tell her this is the one I can't let her listen to. Listen, blame it on me. Tell her that the Jersey girl corrupted you because we (laughs) drop F-bombs all the time, and and you just got caught up in the moment. Blame it on me. Well, uh, my daughter has heard the occasional stub toe stream of consciousness, so, you know, she won't be entirely shocked. Thanks thanks for having me, Tom. I appreciate it, Tom. Tom Nichols, everyone, he is uh, he's a hoot, and he's great on Twitter. You got you to gotta follow him at Radio Free Tom. And we last time we talked about his obsession with, with bare feet, but this time we talked about Jeopardy instead. So <laughs> everybody check out at Radio Free Tom on Twitter. Get his book, The Death of Expertise. You will learn something, and um, it really applies to what we deal with on a daily basis. Tom Nichols, thank you so much. Thank you. Big thank you to Professor Tom Nichols. You can catch him on MSNBC. He does have a great Twitter feed. You should follow him at Radio Free Tom. You can also see him on MSNBC occasionally. And, um, you know, he's always a good time, and I'm glad he took took the time to come chat with me this week and I, I learned some things about Russia and I learned some things about Jeopardy so I appreciate that Professor Nichols anyway uh, that's it for this week's edition um, be sure to reach out to me on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer or on Twitter at honestly underscore Tara or at Tara Setmayer um, I will answer your questions and um, tweet about the episode. Let me know if there's people you want me to interview or questions you want me to ask. Send them to me. Tweet them to me. And oh, a big thank you to Randy Rainbow. My mom and I had an opportunity to go see him. He is a political satirist. If you've never seen Randy Rainbow 
videos, Google him. He is absolutely hysterical. He has been on the scene for years, but really rose to prominence during the election. He does these mock interviews and then turns show tunes into political parodies. And it is just political, comedic brilliance. He's a genius. So big thank you to Randy Rainbow for giving us tickets to go see his show in Washington, D.C. My mom and I had a blast. And um, thank you for bringing some levity and sanity to this insane time during this national shit show of a nightmare with Donald Trump. So that's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. I'll see you next week.